with you. Thank you for praying for us in our travels and uh, in my travel out to the uh, General Council of the Christian Missionary Alliance in Long Beach. Um, I have to say that in 39 years of being a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance and in the numerous uh, councils that I have attended over that period of time, I, I really think this is probably the highlight. I think it's uh, one of the best I've ever been to. And um, the focus was, the thing that made it so good is that the focus consistently throughout the week was on the Lord Jesus Christ and a celebration of who He is and, um, you know, dealing uh, with uh, the, the nitty-gritty realities of our current culture and economy and all of those other things were nonetheless subordinated to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So it was a, it was a wonderful time from that standpoint. Uh, and thank you for praying for us in our trip to Florida to see Rowena's parents. They're, uh, as you know, uh, struggling. Uh, Mildred has uh, pretty advanced Alzheimer's and, uh, Warren, who is 93, uh, this year is, uh, in, uh, failing physical health, but still sharp as a tack. And so uh, it's always uh, a joy to visit with them and with my brother and his wife and Rowena's sister and so on and so forth. So we thank you for for praying for us, and I'm glad to be back. And I'm glad to be here this morning to be able to share the Word with you. I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And I know you've just been standing a while, but can I ask you to stand again as I read the Word of God to us, uh, verse uh, 1 through 18 of Luke 16. You follow along as I read from the New American Standard translation of the Bible. Now, he was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. The manager said to himself, Hmm, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were openly ridiculing him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Father, I pray that you would anoint and bless your word this morning, even as we have read that uh, inerrant and infallible truth that you have recorded for us through Luke's inspiration, we ask you to speak it to us in this moment, fresh, as if we were hearing it for the first time right from your own spirit. Speak to our hearts and teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me, just getting over a sinus infection. And it's proving to be annoying. I apologize in advance to you. But if I'm going to preach, you're going to have to listen to me sniff. (laughs) This is one of the most fascinating stories that Jesus tells in uh, all the Gospels. It's fascinating because it's so challenging to understand. In fact, when you, you know, when you get into it and, and you read what other people have written about it, well, as one commentator said, there are almost as many interpretations as there are interpreters of what this means. It, it, it goes all over the place and what people uh, try to make of it. And uh, it leaves a lot of people perplexed. In fact, I had a number of people from the first service this morning come out and say, I never understood that passage until this morning. Thank you. Uh, for making it clear. And, and I hope that I can do that for you, because I think as we get into it, uh, we can see that Jesus is actually making a very important point. And he's telling a story that admittedly you have to have a little bit of the first century culture uh, to fully embrace, but he's telling a story that principally has to do about the management of wealth. Whatever else this is about, The number one thing that it is about is the management of wealth. Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples about the the true uh, value and the true use of the resources that we have in this world. Contrary-wise, it's also a story about covetousness and greed. Um, That's illustrated in the Pharisees' response as they openly ridiculed Jesus for his teaching Uh, Literally, the word means they were snickering and ridiculing him out loud uh, as he was uh, teaching this story. And so he addresses them 
about the issue of greed and covetousness. And it gives us a commentary from God's own perspective on the inherent nature of money and wealth in itself. The word that's used in the passage, and our King James preserves it as a transliteration, is mammon. And mammon is not just money. Uh, Mammon is wealth in all of its forms. It can be investments, it can be properties, uh, it's whatever represents the resources of this world that people accumulate and uh, as they prepare their net worth statements, you know, they come to the bottom, hopefully the ink is still black, and uh, when they get there, they look at what's the, the accumulation, and that's their wealth in all of its forms. And so, uh, Jesus is making a comment about the nature of money and possessions that equate to the bottom line of a person's net worth. When we begin to look at the story, Jesus opens by saying there was a very rich man. And as we look at some of the dollars that are involved in this, uh, in this story, we're going to see he was apparently a very wealthy man. He's a very rich man, and he has hired a steward or a manager to manage his affairs. That was relatively common among very wealthy people then. In fact, it's not uncommon among uh, wealthy people today. They let other people uh, follow their directions and whatever, and they don't want to have to take care of the day-to-day nuts and bolts of the business. They want to delegate that out so they can enjoy their wealth. I mean, who wants to sit around and and manage everything all the time and, you know, never have any free time? And so they would hire... Um, managers who were not slaves or servants, but actually uh, <clears throat> free men who would uh, be kind of like uh, in, in a privately uh, held corporation. They would kind of like be a uh, chief financial officer or a vice president, that kind of thing, that would be given great authority, and even they would hand the checkbook over, And it would be up to them to take care of the rich and wealthy uh, owners' business affairs. And as a part of their compensation, they were typically allowed to make a commission or a broker's fee on the way they would manage the, uh, the principal's wealth. So here's the setting. Um, there's a rich guy and he has this manager. And word gets back to him that this manager is squandering the resources, that he's foolishly abusing his privileges. And it's a credible report, because you can tell from the, man, from the owner's reaction that he believes that this is in fact true. And so he calls the manager on the carpet, and he says, look, He says, what's this I hear? I hear that you've been squandering my resources. I hear that you've been wasting uh, my assets. And and I am demanding of you an accounting. I want you to bring in the books. We're going to go over them. And I want to see them. And your role as a manager is over. I'm done with you. But I want you to bring me the books and give an accounting. And this manager, you know, 
goes away and he thinks, oh, I've only got a limited amount of time. I've got to produce an accounting. I'm losing my position. What am I going to do? And he, he kind of looks at his options and he says, well, I'm not strong enough to dig anymore. Uh, can't do that. You know, I, I, I can relate to that. I uh, worked my way through school and after school in construction, building houses and commercial buildings and uh, pouring concrete and framing houses and doing finished work and all those kinds of things. And there, were, there was a time in my life when I could uh, take a piece of plywood and, and almost toss it to the guy standing on the roof to start decking a roof, and uh, today I'm doing good if I can even handle my end of a sheet of plywood. And, uh, you know, I look at uh, some construction sites as I pass them today, and I actually have the thought, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not out there uh, trying to, to earn my living by hauling brick around or hauling plywood around or whatever. And that's kind of what this guy says. He says, I've been at this game a long time. I'm middle-aged or older, and, and I, there's just no way that I can go back to digging ditches. And then his position has given him a certain amount of prestige and respect in the community. I mean, he's like the VP of this private holding, and he thinks to himself, Oh, man, I've been the special guest of parties. I've thrown parties. I've got friends in high places. I'm way too proud to beg. What am I going to do? I'm losing my job. And who's going to hire a manager that's been fired for cause? Particularly one that's squandered the wealth. I know what I'll do. And so he calls in the rich man's debtors. And he's going to fix the books. What he does is, he brings them in and he wants to know what they owe. Now, do you suppose for a heartbeat that he didn't know what they owed? I think he knew what they owed. Uh, what he wants to do is he wants to get them uh, to come in and, and verbalize their indebtedness. And he wants them to change the record in their own hand. Whether you call it an invoice or a contract or whatever... He wants them to acknowledge their debt, and then he wants them to change it in their own hand. Now, I agree with those who have uh, researched this and say that what he was about to do in and of itself is not unrighteous. He, he had some issues with morality and righteousness, but what he's about to do was probably a legal maneuver. Because as a manager, uh, a fair amount of his income was derived from commissions that he earned um, giving oversight. So he would broker a loan for his master and he would take a commission off of it or he would assign an interest value to it. And uh, even what he charges for the wheat here, it turns out to be about 25%. Um, we're told from some of the first century historians, uh, Josephus being uh, among them, that that was not an uncommon interest for, uh, Jews weren't supposed to charge each other that, but in, in the general commerce, that was not an uncommon interest rate for wheat. And um, 
it's very likely that what this guy is about to do is he is about to subtract the commission that he has attached and or the interest that he has attached to the note and bring it back to the principal. And to give you an idea of kind of how much money we're talking about, in verses 6 and 7, uh, the Scripture says, he says uh, to this one guy, he says, how much do you owe the master? And he says, a hundred measures of oil. And he says to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Now again, Josephus gives us some insight here according to the the terms that are used and what it translates uh, to in his day and how we can extrapolate it to our time, that this hundred measures of oil would have been 150 or more gallons of olive oil from, from an olive grove, and that that amount of oil would have been approximately equivalent to three years of a person's, of an average person's wage. Now, if, if you take McHenry uh, area, Bull Valley area, this region around here, and you look at the uh, national census tables, it'll tell you that the median income in this region is somewhere around $40,000, $50,000 per household. So if you take that figure and multiply it times three and come up with $150,000, the, the discount that he's giving this guy is about $75,000 in today's terms. So this, this should bring this within our perspective and understanding. I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, how much do you owe the, the, the company? Well, I owe $150,000. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take off all the commission, all the interest, and, and, and let's knock your bill down to 75000 I want you to rewrite it, and, and we'll accept that as the final terms. Wouldn't you just think that you'd um, just had one of your best days? <laughs> I mean, wow, $75,000 just immediately wiped off the books. And so then he calls the next guy in. He says, and, and what do you owe? And um, this guy says in verse 7, uh, well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. Now, a hundred measures of wheat, depending on the reckoning, there's a little ambiguity here in the measurement terms, but it was either two years' worth of wages or ten years' worth of wages. But however you cut it, that's still a lot of money. And he's discounting it, uh, you know, 20%. And so, uh, all of a sudden, as he begins to work through the debtors, we're just told about the first two, as he begins to work through the debtors, people are going away with a windfall like you've never seen. When you think about it, if a person who is in sales loses their job and they're in commission sales, how long do they continue to get their commissions? They're done. <laughs> they don't get their commissions. And so this guy has lost nothing by giving up his commissions. Because the minute he is unemployed and put on the street, he does not have the authority to collect debting for his master. And so there's nothing he can do to collect his commission. But by forgiving the debt and changing the terms of the contract, he puts himself in a position where those that he has treated well are going to look very favorably upon him. And, and the rich 
a wealthy landowner has an interesting perspective on this. It says that the master praised the unrighteous or, or um, uh, ungodly manager because he had acted shrewdly. In other words, he had exercised worldly wisdom, as, as we put it these days, in preparing his parachute. He was ready to land gently because he had made friends of the master's debtor. And when you look at the amount of money that they actually owed, it also gives you insight into the fact that these people were not poor in and of themselves. They were fairly wealthy. Uh, I mean, how, how much collateral do you have to have? How many assets do you have to have today to go borrow seventy-five dollars or $150,000? Uh, particularly when it's not for a house or something. I mean, this is just... Uh, you want a cash flow loan, uh, uh, a loan that uh, will help you in your business, and uh, you want to borrow $150,000. You have to have pretty good resources and collateral to, to get that kind of a, uh, you know, of a, of a loan. And so um, he's looking at these people and saying, these are the kind of people that can take me in. They've got enough uh, background that they can give me a place to live. They may even can give me a job. And I'm going to make sure that I can land softly. And the, the wealthy uh, master says, you know what, you're pretty smart after all. Uh, now, we're left in the story here where we don't know if he got his job back because he was so shrewd. <laughs> or if he had to hit the streets and go find one of those uh, people to be nice to him and take him in. But um, Jesus immediately begins to turn the tables and he says... For in relation to their own kind, the sons of, uh, of this world are more wise and shrewd than the sons of light. And I say to you, to make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I hope at this point the story is starting to make a little more sense to you. Are you with me on the, the manager and the owner and what's happened here? And Jesus' assessment, because it, it, if this guy were really swindling his master rather than doing what he was entitled to do, stay with me here, if he were swindling his master, this would be the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus cast an ungodly act into a favorable light. It'd be the only time. If he were only doing what he was legally entitled to do, then the commendation is on the fact that he acted shrewdly or wisely according to the world's standards in managing his situation. And Jesus says that the people in the world have more sense about the management of mammon or, or uh, resources than 
people who are sons of light, followers of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I think about that at first blush, it seems to me like people in the world live in the dark. Remember, the scripture says the people that dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. People in the world live in the dark. They're blind. They don't have a sense of proper values. Uh, their, their whole thinking is skewed. People who come to faith in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit. Their eyes are open. They dwell in the light. They should be smarter. What is Jesus getting at? Why is it that worldly people have more wisdom in the worldly management of resources than many Christians have in the management of resources? And I think that what Jesus is driving at is they are operating within their value system, which is self-limiting. You know the old saying, you can't take it with you. They're operating within that mentality. I'm going to get all I can, and I'm going to do the best I can to, to, to live well, to live wealthy, to have as much as I can. And they are driving for security and the accumulation of wealth and power and prestige and all that goes with it. Believers oftentimes are operating within the same value system. But they're not in the world. They're in the kingdom. They ought to know better. Christians should have a different value system. They should have a completely different assessment and perspective of wealth that would change the way they operate. And so if a worldly person operates in a worldly fashion and comes out well according to the world standards, you look at that person and say, well, that's pretty smart of them given their worldview. But if you look at someone who should know better, who should have a different value system, who should have a different goal in mind, who should have a different objective, and they're acting like the world, you look at them and you say, that's pretty foolish. They're not thinking according to, to, to godly values. And that's the point Jesus is making, is that sometimes the sons of light, the followers of Jesus, behave foolishly with respect to what ought to be their enlightened understanding. And as he begins to drive the point home, he says, So then I say to you, Take the mammon of unrighteousness and use it to make friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. This guy's looking for a place to go when he gets fired. Jesus is saying you need to think about friends that will welcome you in eternal dwellings when you die. Because you're going to come to an end someday. And notice what he says when the mammon of unrighteousness fails, there's going to come a time, as Job puts it, I came into this world naked, and I'm going to leave it naked. 
I, I didn't have anything when I arrived, and I can't take anything beyond here. There's going to come a time when all the wealth, all the bank accounts, all the accumulated resources, all the money is going to fail. And you're not going to have anything to rely on. That time is either going to come because your time has come, or it's going to come because the, the world is finally imploding and the end times have arrived. But no matter how you look at it, there's going to come a time for you or for all of us when all of the resources in the world have zero value. And Jesus says, when that time comes, make certain that you have an investment that has eternal value. So what does he mean when he says, make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness so that they will receive you into eternal dwellings? Well, how can you do that? And I submit to you that there is a way that you can not only take your wealth with you, but that you can take a whole host of people along with it who will rejoice when they see you. You remember the song that was popular a number of years ago, Thank You, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a whole song of different people who are thanking this person who died and went to heaven, and they're thanking him for... Uh, the, the teaching Sunday school, for sending money to missionaries, for, uh, you know, taking care of the poor. They're thanking him for the influence he had that ultimately brought to them the gospel message that enabled them to come to know uh, God through Jesus Christ and have eternal life. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He is saying that as, as sons of light, as children of the kingdom of God, we need to adjust our values according to God's values. There's all kind of warning in Scripture about chasing money, about loving wealth, about trying to get rich. Uh, Proverbs is filled with warnings about that. and he, Things like uh, the, the person that chases money, it makes itself wings and flies away. Um, Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That uh, there are so many warnings in Scripture. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves on this earth uh, treasures where moths and rust can get in and corrupt and destroy it. And where thieves can break in and steal it. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that are unaccessible to, to uh, deterioration and, and uh, destruction and un- inaccessible to thievery. Put, put your resources in heaven where they will have eternal significance. And what Jesus is driving at here is that we have the amazing opportunity to take something that is so dangerous as wealth and turn it into something so valuable and precious by releasing it in kingdom investment that we can create a whole host of people that will welcome us and receive us into heaven when we arrive there. What am I talking about? I'm talking about supporting missions. I'm talking about caring for the poor. I'm talking about uh, adopting a child overseas uh, for food and support. I'm I'm talking about whatever uh, God uh, opens to you as an opportunity to... Invest yourself and your resources 
where the gospel message will be advanced and proclaimed. I'm not talking about tithing right now. Don't let that go through your mind. I'm talking about the management of resources that includes a 100% availability to God of all that you have, that you are simply a manager, He is the owner. And there's an attitude that you have toward wealth that does not include the pursuit and accumulation of money, but it includes the pursuit of the kingdom of God and the desire to serve and please and honor Him by investing in the kingdom. God knows we have to have money. We, we can't live in this world without money. The, the economies of the world and the cultures of the world all in one way or another demand it. You've got to have some kind of shelter. You've got to have clothing. You've got to have food. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, your father knows this. This is not uh, something that he's not aware of. He understands this. But seek first the kingdom. And seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God will take care of these other things. Make sure your priorities are in alignment with His will and perspective. God says, I don't think the way you think. I don't look on things the way you look on them. My thoughts are as high above yours as the heavens above the earth. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge me and I will guide your paths. And so Jesus is driving home the point that for a son, a child of light, a follower of Jesus, the wise use of wealth is investment in eternal values. What good does it do, Jesus says, if a man accumulate or gain the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what benefit is there for the person who has big bank accounts and all kinds of savings and all kinds of investments if they have neglected the kingdom of God and the, the needs of humanity around them. How does the love of God dwell in you if you can see those who have genuine, legitimate need and shut up your heart of compassion and show no interest in them whatsoever? How does the love of God dwell in you, John says? And so the message here is that we have an opportunity to take the mammon of unrighteousness and, as it were, to sanctify it. Now, it's interesting in this passage that Jesus calls wealth the mammon of unrighteousness. We tend to think of money as being amoral. That is, it doesn't have an intrinsic morality. It tends to take on the morality based on its use. But Jesus is telling us something else about money, and it's something we need to heed. He's telling us that money is such a dangerous thing that it is prone to lead us away from God. If you think about all the things that people use money for in many, many situations, it is a replacement for trust in God. You know, people want to make sure that they are secure for their future, that they have adequate resources 
they, they uh, find themselves frustrated when they have to, quote, trust God. Trusting God should be our daily posture. <laughs> Relying on Him should be our daily experience. But many people want to, to, to hedge their futures in such a way that no matter what the needs are around them, they are taking care of number one. And that's just the good side of it. How many people have you read about that have won the lottery and their lives have been ruined by a sudden windfall? The, the reports are that people who win the lottery blow through it in approximately three years, no matter how much money they win. It lasts about three years. The same is true for people who receive an inheritance. The average is about three years before they've blown it. Windfalls tend to be treated with uh, a cavalier attitude. And as a consequence of that, people have the ability to buy themselves into a passel of trouble. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There is something inherently dangerous about the stuff. And Jesus is bringing it out in this passage. We need to have a godly valuation, a healthy perspective, and a truly wise understanding of the proper use of money which lends itself to ungodliness, lest we fall into its grip. And his point here is, we can actually take unrighteous mammon and turn it into something valuable if we submit it to investment uh, in the wise things. Jesus goes on, as, as he tells this story, he goes on to highlight uh, the character of faithfulness. And he says, in essence, um, people don't suddenly change when they go from a little bit to a lot. And, and so, frankly, this morning, if you've been listening and you say, well, I'm not a wealthy person, so this doesn't apply to me. Guess what? Whether you have a little or you have a lot, it applies to you. You have something. And the way you think about that something reflects your valuation and your value system. Are you open to God? Are you submitted to Him? Are all of your resources under His Lordship and His authority? Not, not 10%, 100%. Is it all available to Him? The person who is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. You don't wait until, well, if I had a lot more money, I could use it more wisely. No, you're going to use it wisely now or you will never use it wisely. The one who's faithful in little is faithful in much. It's a matter of character, a matter of principle, how we view it. Jesus makes it plain that divided loyalties are impossible. You can't serve God in money. You have to make a decision. You have to decide, am I going to pursue the security and the fineries and the, and the, and the fine things of life? Or am I going to pursue the Lord? He may give you the nice things of life. He may bless you in, in many and abundant ways. How many of us here this morning have not been blessed beyond imagination? Look around the world. We're a blessed people. We're an amazing people in terms of what we have. Are we recognizing that? 
And is it secondary to our pursuit and our love of God? You can't serve God in money. If you're pursuing money, God is not your God. Money has become your idol. And then Jesus says in verse 15 something that really ought to stop us in our tracks. It's a, it's a startling statement. The Pharisees, by this point, are openly snickering. And he turns to them and he says, you know, you guys, the ones who love money. He says, let me tell you something. The things that men esteem, God abhors. He can't stand it. He despises it. It makes no impression on him. It it turns his stomach. The things that men esteem, God abhors. Ask yourself, what is it that people esteem? What do they hold in high regard? What wisdom do you get from your financial planner? How do they tell you to invest your resources? What do people give as the common sense wisdom for the use of wealth? What kinds of ways do do cultures and societies place value and esteem upon accomplishments and positions and and uh, and and uh, net worth? It does not impress God. In fact, God looks on it and abhors it. He has a totally different value system. Jesus wants us to to get it. That the things that, that people think are so important are things that God uh, is literally turned nauseous by. I don't know how else to say this word, abhor. Um, it, it's, it's just a, a vitriolic reaction uh, of, of just the opposite of love and interest. God can't stand it. And then... He ends in the strangest note. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And you kind of say, what? We've been talking about money this whole time, and now he talks about divorce. What's the deal? Some of the commentators say, well, Luke didn't know where else to put this, so he just dropped this verse in here. No, I don't think so. I think it's part, I think it's part of the unfolding story. Because the very next thing we're going to look at next time is the rich man and Lazarus. And so we're right in the middle of all this stuff. But what Jesus is really talking about is the amazing ways the Pharisees have of twisting the scriptures. And I think that what he's really doing is he's just bringing in another illustration to them and saying, oh, by the way, you know what you did with Moses and, and his law and his rule and God's heart and God's intent. You guys are always twisting the scriptures. But I'm telling you that not one jot of the scriptures, not a single dot, is going to pass away from the law until everything's been fulfilled. And you're always twisting it out of perspective to suit your own ends. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount and read the full explanation as Jesus teaches it there within the context of the Mosaic Covenant... 
uh, you read that and you find that Jesus says it's the hardness of your heart that caused Moses uh, to give you a, a mitigated um, uh, exp- uh, allowance of the law, and it's your own hardness that has made it even worse than that. And that's your nature. You're always turning things around to suit your own ends. So the question I have for you this morning is, what is your internal valuation of wealth? How do you view your resources? How do you see them before God? Who's the master and who's the manager? Do you see yourself as a steward, as a manager, and God as the ultimate owner? Do you view everything you have as belonging to Him? And do you hold it with open hands? Lord, I'm ready to surrender anything you want at any time you want it. Are you open to needs that come your way? Are you considering ways of investing in the kingdom? When you look at your paycheck, next time you get one, wherever it comes from, when you look at your paycheck, I want you to do something. I want you to look at the dollar amount there, and I want you to translate it into hours. And then I want you to take the hours and translate it into your life. Your paycheck is a reflection of the investment of your life. You spent your life to get that money. Do you see that? Your time... Your breaths are your life. You spent your life to get that. What's your life worth? What is your life worth? What is the best way to use it? How do you want to spend your life? Money is just a a convenient medium that you can use to translate the investment of your life into something of great value or something that is worthless. How do you see that value? And where is your heart when you evaluate your resources? Father, I pray that you would teach us to be good stewards and that we would be submitted to your Lordship in all respects that we would be wise in the value system of the kingdom and not foolish, and that we would use the mammon of unrighteousness to invest in friendships. Some we will never even meet till we see you face to face in that great marriage feast of the Lamb but to invest in those friendships an army of people that will welcome us when we arrive in heaven because we have invested in their eternal destiny. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.